Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. God the Holy Spirit, sensitize us this morning that we would not defend ourselves from the work you wish to do. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So on this day we celebrate all saints, a day in which we look forward to the marriage of that which is terrestrial and that which is extraterrestrial, heaven and earth being finally joined together, the church militant and the church triumphant, knowing no differentiation. Uh, I think it's important on this day of All Saints not only to consider the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, but also the great cloud of witnesses that currently surrounds us. I'd like to think about the unity of the church on earth, in other words. Because we're in the midst of a Christ and culture series, I thought it would be especially appropriate on this day to speak about the subject of race as it relates to the church. Now, I understand that race is a very complex issue in reality with which we live, and there's even debate whether or not race exists in our core biology, or whether it's just an effect of geographically conditioned bodily adaptations having to do with ultraviolet light and elevation, where you live, in other words. Uh, Or if it's more than that, I'll I'll let that debate rage on without me. I'm not qualified uh, to give an opinion. Whether or not race is found in our core biology, uh, we often employ categories of race to define or distinguish between people, and sometimes we use race for evaluating people who is like us and who is not, who is welcome and who is not, who is valued and who is not, who is safe and who is not, who is upper crust and who is not. I find that racism can come to us in a myriad of forms, some of them symbolic, some of them horrific. I think of symbolic gestures which shape a culture's imagination or assumption uh, regarding race. I think about some of the Jim Crow laws from yesteryear. Uh, One of the, uh, the most vivid of those laws that you may be familiar with, I'll read it to you, It is unlawful to conduct a restaurant at which white and colored people are served in the same room unless such persons are effectually separated by a solid partition extending from the floor upward to a distance of seven feet or higher. The symbolic gesture that helps to reframe people's imaginations related to race. There are also horrific examples of racism that involve thuggery and murder. You consider the eugenics movement, which was aimed to reduce the population of minorities. You think about the Holocaust in which Jews and also gypsies were targeted. Think about the Khmer Rouge and how many millions of people, we still don't know, died in Cambodia many of those murders racially motivated, the Rwandan genocide, 
and of course the slave trade in the Americas. When I was 11 years old, I was over visiting my uncle Bud and his wife, Aunt Margaret. Aunt Margaret was upstairs in the attic doing some cleaning out and sorting through uh, lots of boxes and trunks that were there for years and years and have gone unopened. Aunt Margaret was a very soft-spoken and sweet woman, and so I was startled, as was my Uncle Bud, when he heard a very loud shriek from the attic. We went upstairs to see what was wrong, and Aunt Margaret had opened a trunk that belonged to her grandfather, and in it she discovered a full clansman robe with hood and was terrified and didn't know that our family had any connections with the Ku Klux Klan. And so there have been horrific examples of racism, the ramifications and residue of which we still, with which we still live. Uh, and so I want to talk about race and Holy Scripture. Uh, Holy Scripture has at times been uh, misapplied and misused to increase rather than dilute racism. And today I hope to oppose that trend. So I want to speak about race and Holy Scripture from the perspective of three individuals. From Abram, Jesus Christ, and John the Revelator. In other words, we're going back to the near beginning of the story, the center of the story, and then the end of the biblical story. And these men help to build a new world in which this kind of insipid racism is forever undercut and abolished. But I want to consider first race through the eyes of Abram. Now, we may think that these words that God spoke to Abram is in some ways the origin of racism, that God is electing Abraham and his people to be an elite Brahmin caste ruling over those people who are either simply not chosen by God or damned because of a lack of choosing. This is untrue. I want to look at these uh, verses with you, beginning in verse 2, where God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Genesis 1 through 11 tells a world story. Genesis 1 through 11 uh, harkens back to the uh, primordial waters of creation. Uh, it harkens back to the first moments of human existence and speaks not of Israel. It's fascinating that the Jewish recollection of world history doesn't begin with Jews. Israelites. Instead, it begins with Adam, who is not the father of the Jewish race, but the father of all races. But then there's this transition in Genesis 12 and onward, at least in the Old Testament. And it's a transition from a world story to a family story. We're shifting now from all races to one in particular, and not even a race at this point, but just a single man a moon-worshipping Iraqi citizen named Abram heard syllables from heaven, syllables that told him he was about to embark upon a whole new way of thinking, worshipping, and living. This is what we call in theology election, 
Election has to do with choosing. I want to note two things about this choosing that God does with Abram. First, it's unearned. Second, it's generous. But first, it's unearned. Abram was not chosen because of racial, linguistic, societal, or religious superiority. He was a pagan, an old man, too old to start a family, let alone a nation. God elects him, and then later explains to Israel in his second giving of the law in Deuteronomy the divine reasoning behind choosing an empty vessel to create a new world. Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. In other words, the Lord elects because he loves, and he doesn't need any further reasoning, and it wasn't because Abram was great. The same is true with us. You know, I I hear sometimes people say crazy things. What a broad statement. Sometimes I hear people say crazy things. Uh, You know, Um, but some people say, isn't it nice that, that Jesus could see in his disciples their future potential and knew that there would be a payoff? So he selected them knowing their gifts and qualities. Really? I'm not sure he had too many supporters at Calvary. God does not elect you. God does not choose you. God does not call you because you're amazing, but because he loves you. And that's much better, by the way. So so it's an unearned election. But also it's a generous election. It's not purpose so that Israel becomes some super race, some national Fort Knox protecting ethnic heritage. It's not a fort, but a fountain. It's so that life will not be contained, but will move through Israel and bless the world. It's about giving so that all families, all families on the earth will be blessed. God was electing Abraham so that Latin American families would be blessed. God was electing Abraham so that Asian families would be blessed. God was electing Abraham so Saharan families would be blessed. Through Abraham, God was going to bless everybody. And that's the purpose of election in the Bible. Election is never understood in a stingy manner. God elects people so that he can widen the scope. And so that's raised through the eyes of Abraham. God selects this man to be the vehicle, the fountain of blessing that will impact and nourish the world. All families. Now raised through the eyes of Christ. In verse 18, this is the Great Commission. In verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This is a pivotal moment in the biblical story. Something is changing. You may know that Jesus had a public face for about three years. A public ministry, and he didn't travel very far in that public ministry. Jesus is not St. Paul who, by the way, traveled the world more than Julius Caesar. Uh, Jesus is not doing that. Instead, Jesus says at one point, I've come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And now, at this moment, 
we have uh, something shifting. Something has changed because of the death and resurrection. At the death and resurrection, we have the particular Christ becoming the universal Christ. The Christ who came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel has now fulfilled by his death and resurrection, which was a gift for all peoples, the bronze-aged pledge to Father Abraham. And now all nations are welcome into the kingdom, and no race is, is, is excluded because of race. So Jesus in the Great Commission is doing something radical. He is redefining the community of God, opening the doors and opening them wide. He tells them to baptize all nations. No more are they just to go to the house of Israel, but to all peoples. It's a pivotal moment. The thing that I find fascinating about this is that in telling them to baptize all nations, Jesus is taking part of Judaism but changing it. Within Judaism in the first century, there already was a baptism of sorts. It was called a mikvah bath. So if you were a Gentile person but were convinced that Israel had it right about the heavens, you could become a son or daughter of Israel. And how you would do it is you would lay down in a coffin-shaped hole in the ground filled with water. You would strip down naked, lay down in this coffin-shaped hole filled with water, and come out the other side and put on a white linen gown, which represented that you were no longer a son of the Gentile world, but were now a son of Israel. Why didn't Jesus just take that? Take that image, take that practice, and use it. Instead, he does something very different. He says, we're not to wait for them to come to us. You are to go to all nations and baptize those nations, uh, not into the name of Israel, but into a name that is far more transcendent and everlasting, into something or someone who is eternal. You are to immerse them in the name, singular, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why is that interesting? Uh, because he doesn't say to baptize them in the name of Yahweh. Yahweh was the, the name that Israel associated with God, revealed to them in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, where God gives Israel the name, I am that I am, or Yahweh. And at this point, that, in this point in Jewish history, that name was associated with Israel, with Israel's God, with Israel's land, with Israel's temple, with Israel's high priest who would utter that name once a year, in the Holy of Holies. But now Jesus is saying, go to all nations and baptize them in the name of the inner life of God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is a more universally appealing name. Why? Because we have in the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit a Son which has come to die for the sins of the world and a Holy Spirit which is poured out upon all flesh regardless of the color of that flesh. And so we have this, this shift that is taking place. Uh, you may remember that John Wesley at one point was being uh, um, mishandled by some Anglican prelates, some bishops, not like our bishop who's coming today, who's very nice, um, but uh, mis mishandled by some bishops. And they said, John, we don't like it that you're doing some of these services and you're even ordaining clergy apart from the Episcopal system. We have a system. You're not following the system. You should be part of a diocese, preach in churches, not outdoors. Like, what are you doing? And John Wesley famously retorted, the world is my parish. Right? Well, the world is the parish of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pivotal moment right here. This new community of Christ is to be like water in a western Pennsylvania basement. That is to say, it seeps through all the walls, 
all the walls that we set up, whether they are racial or linguistic or geographic. Now, lastly, race through the eyes of John the Revelator, who says in this apocalyptic, close encounters of the third kind type of scene, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests unto our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, this is a vivid depiction of the Omega. This is it. This is the uh, last chapter, the bookend of history. Uh, nothing improves past this point. This is apocalypse. And what we see in this apocalyptic scene is unity from diversity. You have diversity, right? You have different tribes, languages, peoples, and nations. Note they are not all made into the same master race. The Third Reich also had an apocalyptic vision that everybody would look exactly the same and speak the same language and have the same ideology. And here we see something very different, an apocalypse in which uh, we have diversity. That who is in this crowd? I mean, you have Paul the Jew. You have Junia the Roman. You have uh, a eunuch from Ethiopia. You have wise men from Iran and Asia. And you have Abram from Iraq. All gathered around the throne in unity because they have one center and one vocation. The one center is the bleeding lamb on the throne who bled for this audience and bled to make them into an audience, into a single unit. And you also have a vocation that we are all now consecrated people. We're all priests before the throne of God, offering him the sacrifice of praise. And so this is the vision of the Omega. Uh, so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we know how it is in heaven. So we are praying for the future to become present. We are praying for that scene in Revelation to be made real here and now. There are no seven-foot walls in the kingdom of Christ. Race through the eyes of Abram, through the eyes of Christ, through the eyes of John the Revelator. On All Saints, I'd like to conclude with some thoughts about race and the church. Scripture gifts us, redeems us, if you will, to have wide eyes, open ears, and clasping hands. Wide eyes. That we perceive with our eyes God's justice, his righteous design, and perceive when that righteous design is being undercut Undercut in obvious ways with burning crosses, and undercut in subtle ways where we don't acknowledge the residue of racism in our own present time. We are made, according to the biblical account, in the image of God, and all of us deserve, regardless of language, race, or religion, dignity and being respected. Um, Tim Keller wrote this about the recent debacle in Charlottesville. Christians should look at the energized and emboldened white nationalism movement and its fascist slogans and condemn it, full stop. No, but on the other hand, some public, some public conservatives are using the events to prove that liberal identity politics is wrong, and some liberals are using it to prove that conservatism is inherently racist. We must not do that. 
Second, this is a time to present the Bible's strong, clear teachings about the sin of racism and of the idolatry of blood and country. In Acts 17, in the midst of an evangelistic lecture to secular pagan philosophers, Paul makes the case that God created all races from one man. Paul's Greek listeners saw other races as barbarian. But against such views of racial superiority, Paul makes the case that all are made in God's image, and every human life is of infinite and equal value. 20th century fascist movements made absolute values of blut und boden, blood and soil, putting one's race above the good of everyone else's, and claimed to champion traditional family values over and against the decadence of relativistic modern culture. Even though they were no friends of Orthodox Christianity, they could and can still appeal to people within our own circles. So it is absolutely crucial to speak up about the biblical teaching on racism, not just now, but routinely. To really develop the eyes of Christ, to appreciate the image of God in all of us, and to also watch out for those times when that image is being undercut. Also, open ears, open ears that eagerly listen rather than react. I remember the first time I heard the title, Black Lives Matter. I had an immediate and visceral reaction to the title. And I said, well, that's not true. All lives matter. And then I came to know that there was like an all lives matter mini movement that was going on as well. Now, I hadn't at that time researched the movement. I just heard the title. I have subsequently done some research and realized that Black Lives Matter is a very, very broad movement. And there are elements in it I like, elements in it I don't, and elements that I'm unsure about. The point is not that movement. The point is, why did I have that reaction? It was instinctive. I did no research. None at all. What is that about? Why didn't I listen before I reacted or responded? Better to respond than to react, after all. That's the point that I want to raise with us, is do we listen? There's great power in listening, friends. Uh, the power of listening, in fact, is uncovered by the words of a Kenyan poet named uh, Warson Shire. She wrote this, Dear God, I come from two countries. One is thirsty, and the other is on fire, and both need water. Later that night, I held an atlas in my lap, ran my fingers across the whole world, and whispered, Where does it hurt? And it answered, Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Listening helps those who listen and those who speak. It helps the listener to understand pain, even if the presentation of that pain is imperfect. And it helps those who speak. Listening helps the speaker and the pain to come forth like the dead Lazarus out of the tomb. Racial healing begins with the ears. It begins with listening. Wide eyes, open ears, and lastly, clasping hands. This image came to me based on something that occurred in 1995. I was part of a youth group at St. Peter's Reformed Church, and we went as a youth group from our white bread town of Zillianople, Pennsylvania, to visit a multi-ethnic church in Pittsburgh called Covenant Church, where Joseph Garlington is the pastor. 
And it was very different from the worship styles and settings that we were used to, but it was glorious. But I was telling a high school friend about the forthcoming trip and what we were about to do, and this high school friend looked at me quizzically and said, well, you're not going to hold hands with one of them, are you? Meaning somebody of a different racial background. I didn't even know how to respond to the question. I, we didn't hold hands in church normally, so I figured it won't be an issue, I guess. But we went down to Pittsburgh, and after a very rousing sermon by uh, uh, the, the minister, he said, what I would like you to do is all form these prayer circles. And so turn around and take the hands of the people who are around you and pray. So I turned around, and there was this lovely 20-year-old African-American woman who stretched out her hand to mine. And I had realized that moment, I've never held hands with anybody of a different race before. But I took her hand, and at that moment, I had an epiphany. This is beautifully uneventful. It's just a hand. A hand that is just like mine. But we were connected by the Spirit of God in that moment. And that was a small moment. But that moment got into the deep tissue of my own soul. Clasping hands has always stayed with me. And I think clasping hands can heal. Can heal even adversaries. This is a, a, a story that came from the podcast Snap Judgment. Uh, they recently told this factual story. It was entitled The Rabbi and the Klansman. In it, Rabbi Michael Weiser moved from New York City to take a job at a synagogue in Lincoln, Nebraska. Almost immediately, he got an anonymous phone call from a voice that said simply, you'll be sorry you ever moved into that house, Jew boy. Within a few weeks, a package filled with racist material arrived at his house with a card from the Klan that read, the KKK is watching you. It didn't take long for Rabbi Weiser to figure out who the perpetrator was. Larry Trapp was, a notori was notorious in the community as a white supremacist. But the rabbi thought it might be a good idea to reach out to Larry and get him to talk. And so every week, right before he taught bar mitzvah lessons, Rabbi Weiser would call Larry Trapp and leave him what he called love notes on his answering machine. He would call and say things like, Larry, there's a lot of love out there in the world and you're not getting any of it. What's wrong? After several months of the rabbi calling Larry, Larry finally picked up the phone and snapped, why are you calling me? You're hassling me. The rabbi said, I just want to talk to you. Larry asked, what do you want to talk about? The rabbi responded, I hear that you're disabled and you might need a ride to the grocery store. Larry said, I got that covered. Don't call me anymore. Click. But the rabbi kept calling. Until one Sunday evening, Larry Trapp called Rabbi Weiser back. And Larry was crying and told the rabbi that he wanted to be done with his racism and his hatred. He asked the rabbi to come to his home and to take away all of his white supremacy literature and his paraphernalia. The rabbi didn't know if this was a ruse, but decided to take the risk. When the rabbi arrived, Larry wept and wouldn't stop weeping 
and he repented. He and Rabbi Weiser gradually became friends, to the point that when Larry began to have kidney failure, the rabbi's wife, Julie, suggested that they take Larry into their own home. The same man who had threatened their children was moved into their daughter's bedroom. The daughter willingly gave it up for Larry. And Julie willingly gave up her job in order to take care of Larry full time. He lived in their house for nine months before he died. The story moves me a lot. It has the ring of Jesus' words regarding seven times seventy. And St. James' words of mercy triumphing over judgment. This is the risk and the undiluted power of clasping hands. It paves a road through the wilderness to a new future. Jesus shed crimson blood. That crimson blood matches the blood of those in Zimbabwe, Poland, Argentina, Taiwan, and in Grove City, Pennsylvania. Under the skin, we are all the same. We all have the same needs, and we all have the same Savior, which means we all have the same love. A Savior who can give us wide eyes, open ears, and clasping hands. On earth, as it is in heaven, a kingdom that, thanks be to God, forever banishes all seven-foot walls until the end of time. May it be so. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.